You stand on the shore of the ocean watching the tide come in. You sense the call of the sea beckoning to take you further. You step forward little by little, not knowing what to expect, but expecting more. You keep going as the ocean calls, calls you to enter in to deeper waters. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Deeper Waters Podcast. I'm Nick Peters, your host, seeking to bring you the very best in Christian scholarship and apologetics. And today, we've brought back one of our former guests to come on to talk about another topic that can be in the news again. That was years ago, the world was caught up in what's called Pottermania, all about Harry Potter, and people either loved him or hated him, and a lot of Christians really hated him as well. And, you know, it was popular, and then the series concluded, and probably people thought, well, you know, it was just flash in the pan, just what was popular at the time, and we move on, we do other things. Well, last year kind of killed that theory, in that the movie Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them, and the book Harry Potter and the Cursed Child came out, and both of them were smash hits in time. Whether you like them or don't like them, they were smash hits. Somehow, the boy who lived is still living. So we've brought uh, John Granger on to talk about this. By the way, before we get to that, I'd like to let everyone know also, you might hear me sniffing someday. It's been a rough time here at our household. So I'd really like you to Pray for my wife, because she's had a lot of nausea lately. It's not pregnancy. We've already checked that, but we I even had to take her to the ER last night because it was so bad. But it's led to a lot of restless nights in such many ways, so yeah, my apologies if my allergies are getting in the way of this. But now let's get to the show here. Tagged the Dean of Harry Potter Scholars by Time Magazine's Lev Grossman, John Granger, our guest today, has been the leading expert on the subject of the artistry and meaning of J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter novel since the publication of his first book on the subject in 2002. The author or editor of eight books, The Hogwarts Professor, has been a keynote and featured speaker at more than 20 academic and fan conferences and spoken at 25 major universities and colleges. John has a bachelor's degree in classics from the University of Chicago, a master of fine arts in creative writing and is working on his PhD thesis at Swansea University Wales. And what a shock I found out in show prep before any it's on Harry Potter. Who would have guessed? He blogs at HogwartsProfessor.com and podcasts at MuggleNet Academia at MuggleNet Academia. So uh John, welcome back to the Deeper Waters Podcast. Wonderful to be here, Nick. Thank you for inviting me. Now, if my uh, audience doesn't know much about you, tell us a little bit about uh, who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing. Okay. I I started out as a uh, the father of seven children, very much opposed to these books. The, uh, it, was, it was in the year 2000. Um, I wasn't opposed to the books from any knowledge. It was that uh, the person who urged me to buy them was kind of a new age character. I I I didn't think, she, you know, I, I told her, I'm a Christian, we don't do wizardry or whatever. 
Um, and my wife didn't like them because they were everywhere. I mean, they were selling them in gas stations in Houston. We were there. You know, there, there. Right. And well, <clears throat> that uh, I, I, funny. Our pediatrician gave my oldest daughter, who was then eleven, a copy of of uh, the the paperback which had just come out. And I decided to read it so I could explain to her why we don't read trash like this. This was the and, first book to be sure, right? Right, The Philosopher's Stone. In 2000, the first three books were out and the fourth book was about to come out. And so I, I read the book one night and uh, the rest is history. I, you know, the, books are, the books are wonderful. The books are, um, are, are <laughs> overladen with, with uh, Christian imagery and such. So much so it's almost a parody. And... Uh, so I read the books. I, I bought the rest of the books. I read them to my children. And then I found out that there was all this resistance to the books in the Christian community. And I wrote a book that was originally called uh, The Hidden Key to Harry Potter. Now it's called How Harry Cast a Spell. Mm-hmm. And it was published by Tyndale. Uh, and w- that book explains the Christian content of the books and what we call the Iliadi thesis, which is that um, – Iliadi, Mercy Iliadi, the famous historian of religions at the University of Chicago, said that in a secular culture like our own, uh, stories, entertainments serve a mythic or religious function, which is to say that when basically God has been chased to the periphery of the public square, the impulse and the longing for God is going to find its release somewhere, and uh, most naturally it finds it in story. Uh, well, those my my uh, what the, the corollary to the Iliadi thesis is that the stories that have the most Christian content that doesn't interfere with the story, stories like the Narniad, stories like Lord of the Rings, etc., that those stories will be the most popular ones because they serve the function of what story does in a secular culture most effectively. When you say you know- I mean, when you say Christian content doesn't interfere with a story, you're talking about like the stories aren't blatantly in your face Christian, but they got that's Christian right. themes, right? That's that's not, right. Not like Christian movies today. Yeah, well, it's. I mean, C.S. Lewis talked about you know he, that he wanted his story, he wanted to smuggle the gospel. He didn't want to have the gospel be like a stained glass window, um, sort of a, a cartoon, not something like. Um, Focus on the family's adventures and odyssey. I mean, that's that's kind of in-your-face uh, evangelical witnessing. And while they have a certain audience, and my kids love them, but but it's it's never going to be something like Potter Mania or the Chronicles of Narnia because uh, it's you're you're constantly dealing with the fact that you're being witnessed rather than being engaged by the story and uh, eliding or losing yourself inside the story. Uh, that, that that's that's that was Rowling's genius, uh, and in that story we get not only do we get this repeated you know every story of, in the seven novels we get Harry confronts evil in the end willingly sacrificially uh, and he dies a near death uh, and he rises from the dead in the presence of a symbol of Christ in every single book. You know, it's, it's, you know, if it happened once, like in the first book, he rises after three days or whatever. I mean, if, it, if it happened just once, you could say, okay, you know, just kind of a happy accident. But seven times in a row, we realize this is this is intentional artistry, um, and it has an effect. Basically, you're having an imaginative experience of a resurrection with a character that you've 
uh, you've had a cathartic experience alongside because of your identification with that that character. And in, especially in the seventh book, the seventh book, uh, Christianity Today said, Deathly Hallows 7 is Matthew 6, because there was just so much Christian content in it to include you know, passages from scripture that um, it, was, it was hard to get away from the meaning. And, and, and not a very, you, don't have to, you didn't have to dig very deep inside Deathly Hallows to get that Rowling was telling her own um, conversion experience. Basically, uh, Harry's doubts about Dumbledore throughout Deathly Hallows are, are really the postmodern's doubt in God and in the Christian faith. And when Harry res- resolves those things in, on Easter morning in the grave, you know, in Dobby's grave at, uh, at, at the cottage, that, that's you know, the end of the story. It basically, you know, now it's just playing this out. And it, it plays out wonderfully, of course, where he again confronts the Dark Lord. You know, uh, it, it, and we, we, we rise from the dead, this time with Harry as a, as a symbol of Christ himself because of his, again, his sacrificial death to himself and his, his confrontation with the fallen man and his willingness to give up that person to, you know, to, to, to um, serve his community and his friends and love for them. Um, it, I mean, it had a very powerful Christian ending, which brings us, I think, to the subject of this conversation, because that was, that was 10 years ago, believe it or not, right? That was, that was 2007. Uh, now, now, we had the movies play out. I think the, the second Deathly Hallows film came out in 2010. Yeah, um, I, I think so, because I'm pretty sure... My wife and I never went, went to one together, and I went to see all of them, and we got married in 2010. Okay. So that uh, – I remember writing an article uh, on commission. Christianity Today asked me to write this article, you know, basically and, – and, and the article was titled, Harry Potter is Here to Stay, meaning that it's not over because the last movie is out. It's going to go on, and we, and we knew that at the time because – um, you know, first of all, they they'd sold almost half a billion copies of the books globally, and and the movies had even reached a greater audience. So you had basically the imaginations of a generation largely formed in the crucible of Harry Potter, and we and we saw even while Harry Potter was coming out, events like Twilight and the Hunger Games, which used a lot of Rowling's artistry. Her, her ring composition, her soul triptychs, uh, the, uh, certainly the alchemy, literary alchemy involved. I mean, these, these authors, um, Stephanie Meyer and Suzanne Collins, were smart enough to figure out what Rowling was doing and to, in a different genre tell a story, uh, not necessarily mimicking her themes, but using the tools to create that, that reader experience. So even, even in 2010, we knew that Harry Potter wasn't going to go away. And we also knew that Rowling wasn't going to go away either. I mean, she's a relatively young woman. She's just turned 50. Um, and she's already come out with a book at that point, Casual Vacancy. And while it wasn't a hit, I mean, it sold very well because it was, it was a J.K. Rowling piece. Um, it, it let us know that she was still writing. And, then, and now we've had uh, the three Cormoran Strike mysteries that she's written underneath uh, a pseudonym but not much of a pseudonym when everybody knows who's actually writing the book. 
Um, and now we're getting the Fantastic Beasts movies, and we've had Harry Potter and the Cursed Child, which, um, as, as we'll discuss, isn't really a rolling piece, but it does close off the Harry Potter narrative. Mm-hmm. Now, I would like to let everyone know, just in advance, we are going to be talking about the movies and such, and I haven't even got to see Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find them yet, but... I want everyone to know there could be possible spoilers here. So if you're planning on seeing these or reading these books sometime soon, you might want to hold off and then come back to this podcast later. <laughs> well, yeah, I, I, I want to say, Nick, if they listen to this podcast, I, I'm going to ruin those stories for them in terms of the surprise. I, mean, I hope that the people are here to, to hear about what they mean how we're supposed to understand them in terms of the other stories, this and that. But yeah, if, if, if you haven't heard the stories, we're not going to be pulling any punches here. You, you'll, you'll need to come back. Yeah, now, John, let me ask you, when you're going back to the very beginning, you get uh, Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone, or as you call it, the Philosopher's Stone, which is actually the real name of an author. When is it in your reading that your mind begins to change? Oh, when I first read the story? Yeah. Oh, I, I you know... Well, first of all, there there are a couple of things that just I, I, I assumed because of the title, the sorcery, excuse me, that we were going to be uh, uh, seeing sorcery. We were going to be seeing what they call invocational magic. We were going to be seeing uh, basically principalities and powers being called upon Faust-like to do Harry's ends. You know, so either like a magical genie, you know, Aladdin-like, or or actually making deals with devils and poltergeists or whatever. So I, I was looking for that inside the story so I could tell my kids, we don't read trash like this. This is just stupid. You don't play with the psychic realm. Every revealed tradition, isn't that as a Christian hang-up? You know, if you're a Muslim, if you're a Buddhist, if you're you know, whatever, you don't play with the psychic realm. That's that's a universal uh, univer- human wisdom event. Don't play with the psychic realm. So I was waiting for that event, and of course, Nick, you've seen the you know, seen the movies and you've read the books, they, that, that event never happens because there is no invocational magic inside Harry Potter. There's so-called dark magic, but it's not, it's not invocational. It's incantational, which, I mean, the word means to sing along with. It's, it's harmonizing magic, and it requires a Christian worldview because the only way speech magic works is if the fabric of reality is speech, right? So, so and, and unlike... Uh, you know the, the materialistic, scientific idea that the, the world is made of matter and energy. The Christian worldview is is that it's actually made of speech. Um, that, that God's word creates everything, and so this magic in English literature, since Shakespeare's Tempest and before, incantational magic has always been a sign of a Christian worldview and a story being told you know, a fantastic tale being told um, that requires you and, and it reinforces the view that the world is brought into existence moment to moment by God's word. All right. So probably the first thing that occurred to me that, that stunned me was this isn't why are they calling this a sorcerer's stone? Because there's no sorcery involved. And then it was clear that it was a, then once you read the story, you find out it's a philosopher's stone, which has to do with alchemy and the whole story plays out that way about Harry's, Harry's transformation or whatever. Now, that, that was the first thing, but there, there was just some giant, um, you know, uh, uh, markers inside the story. The, the most important one, I think, is when Harry goes into the Forbidden Forest 
uh, uh, he's being punished. Uh huh. Hello, John. Oh, hello, hello! I'm back. I'm sorry. I pushed a button. Um, okay, you said Harry Potter goes into the forest. He's being punished. He's being punished. Yes, he has his attention, and uh, he confronts the Dark Lord. The Dark Lord is there in the form of a serpent. He's actually, or a uh, sort of a serpent. He's 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 taken over Queerness Quirrell's uh, nature here, and he's killed a unicorn, which you know is a traditional symbol of Christ, and we. And he drinks the blood of the unicorn. Well, he, Harry sees this and is terrified, but he's saved by a, cent, a centaur who jumps in. It was named Forenzi, which is the, the Italian, Italian word for Florence. Anyway, Forenzi jumps in, saves Harry Potter. Harry Potter jumps on his back. He's invited to jump on his back. And as they're leaving the forest, Forenzi says to Harry Potter, um, Harry, do you know what? Unicorn's blood is used for, is good for. And he says, no, we've only used the tails, you know, and, and potions. And Forenzi then explains that the blood of a unicorn will save your life, even if you're just at the very tip of death. If you drink unicorn's blood, it will save your life. But, he says, if you drink unicorn's blood unworthily, you'll be damned. Now, I, I, I can remember literally just dropping the book in my lap while reading this, because you know it's it, it, because it's it's First Corinthians. You know, it's it's essentially Saint Paul saying that the blood, the Eucharist, you know, the blood of Christ is salvific, unless you drink it on you take it unworthily, and that's why so many of us are really asleep in our faith or whatever because we don't prepare for communion, etc. Now he goes through that whole thing in. First Corinthians about the blood of Christ, and here we have, a, a, you know, it's, it's. I thought this is this is uh, more, uh, this is more profound Christian content than you get in the Narnia novels until the very end of the story. You know, really, you know, when when the, when the lion is kind of revealed as the Christ. Where, but, but that Aslan moment in the middle of this book made me think, oh, these are this is really good stuff because it's not. You know, uh, you know, non-Christians and a lot of Christians who aren't especially biblically literate just went right over that as, oh, that's what unicorns are. Maybe they didn't know that a unicorn is a symbol of Christ, whatever. I mean, I mean uh, they missed that, but they got it implicitly. They got it, you know, they, they got it in their imagination if they didn't get all the connections and all the intertextual connections. They got it um, inside the story. And I thought, this is wonderful. And that's when I that's when I really turned a corner and said I've got to read these books to my kids, or I or I have to allow them to read the books if they're that old. Um, that's what I did the next morning. My daughter got up, and she came out thinking, you know, here I go. Dad's going to give me a lecture on why we can't read trash like this. And she was really disappointed. She wanted to read the story. And I gave her the book and I said, Hey, I got you know I got good news and bad news. I mean, the good news is you can read the book. And she. Opens it up to look if I pulled pages out of it or something. You know, she thinks I'm a bad dad. And but I said the bad news is is you have to read it because it's that good. I'm gonna I'll I'll be, I'll be reading these books aloud to you know the other children tonight. You know she, she was just doing that. You know at that point, um, gosh, it was 2000. So all of our children except for one had been born, and Mary Mary was carrying our last. So that that um, you know that that was a, a 
that scene of forensic to me is 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 a, a critical one. You know, it's it's and there's so many tips to Narnia inside the thing. Um, I thought, you know, I still do. I still think. I, I think that Rolling Away is almost running was almost running a parody of in, of Christian high fantasy inside the story. There's so many uh, Christian references and symbols and themes inside the books. Yeah, let me ask ask another introductory question here. And that's a, some everyone's wondering, what's it like being related to Hermione Granger exactly? <laughs> <laughs> it's you know, it, I, I I am glad that that uh, <laughs> uh, Hermione, Hermione and I share a last name. It's because especially the young people that come to my talks. They they really do believe that I'm related to Hermione, and therefore I must be a smart guy. I mean, what if I was named Weasley? They wouldn't. They wouldn't. They might think I was a nice guy. They might think I was a courageous guy, but they wouldn't think I was a smart guy. You know. But um, being named. But and and probably the funniest thing, Nick, about being named Granger in a in a story where the the smart character is named Granger is that in the last book we find out what what uh, Hermione's middle name is. Now, Rowling had told us in an interview she gave in 2000 that Hermione's middle name was Jane. And she typed it out. It was, it was an online thing. She typed it in. It wasn't like you could misunderstand her pronunciation. But then in the last book, in Dumbledore's Will, we find out that Hermione's middle name is, is Jean, is, is Jean, J-E-A-N. And it's like, so now Hermione's Hermione's name is now John Granger. You know, I mean, so I mean, uh, now I've never met Miss Rowling, and I have no reason. I've, I, in fact, I've got several reasons to believe she doesn't <laughs> care for my books or anything like that. But it is funny in Deathly Hallows, Hermione's big mission is to read Tales of Beetle the Bard, the kids' book, and to figure out what it means. You know, um, which is basically what I've been doing with her work since two thousand. Too, you know. Um, anyway, I, 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 that sounds a lot like Gilderoy Lockhart here, seeing yourself inside the book and saying, "Yeah, look at that." But um, so be it. It's 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 the funny thing about the name. And you asked, Nick. I didn't ask you to ask the question. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I have to say, my time with books again because I've always loved most anything fantasy and such, and I saw all these Christians. Uh, getting up in arms about it. And Jerry, I've come to that conclusion that usually when Christians get up in arms about something in pop culture, it's nothing to be up in arms about. <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's, that's the way I've come to discredit most everything. As soon as I hear X is satanic, I'm immediately throwing that idea out pretty much. Which is a shame, isn't it? I mean, I mean it could be because there are things in popular culture which are anything but edifying. Yeah. And it's such a shame now that th I don't think you're alone, Nick, in thinking that that uh, that when people hear people say, oh, this is a dangerous thing, you shouldn't read this, or you shouldn't watch this film. I mean, there are some films, mean, to me, I just use the rating system, right? If it's, if it's PG-13 or, you know, or, or, or out of that range, then it's, it's, I just don't go. But, but this, this um, Yes, it's a shame because there, there are things and we do need to be watchful about the books that we read and movies that we experience. But it's a shame that now that, that, that Christians have largely been removed from that discussion because we have cried wolf too many times. Yeah, anyway, I went and 
I didn't have much of the same time. I mean, because I'm, I mean, so much academic stuff. But I'll get the audio books. And Jim Dare, as I'm sure you know, does an excellent job reading the books. And so I've, I've got it on my tape deck, and I'm playing, or on my CD player, whichever one the book comes in. And regularly after a while, before too long, I find myself stopping somewhere where, where it is where I'm going to be going. I've reached my destination. I'll say, I'll turn the car off after this sentence. After <laughs> this sentence. When, when this sentence, okay, I'll, I'll wait here. I'll wait. Yep. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I couldn't turn it away because it was so, so exciting. Yeah, I, I, I had the same experience in that I read the stories out loud to my kids the first four at least when they went in 2000 and then um I, and of course i was reading to myself because I, I didn't just start with they'd go to sleep hearing the stories and then i would keep reading right so I'd, I'd read the stories out loud i'd read the stories to myself and then we had we moved from houston to the olympic peninsula west west of seattle and on that long drive in our van our moving van or whatever i listened to jim dale's recordings of the first four books um, and it was really on that trip that I realized uh, I, a lot of the things that I talk about inside my books about soul triptychs and the alchemy and stuff like that. I realized on that trip uh, because of it's, it's it, there's something about listening to a story being told aloud yep. that I don't know. I guess it's dangerous to do that on the road because I become so involved in the story. I sometimes find when I'm driving and listening to stories. I don't remember anything of what's, what what happened on the road when I was there. I, I haven't had I haven't had any accidents, but excuse me, I wonder how many people have had accidents because they've been so engaged by story they've just clued out, turned out to you know things going on on the road. Uh, anyway, and for and I, I saw, saw from people who've had had that experience. Please, I'm not I'm not telling you to please listen to Harry Potter on the road, but um, I, I certainly my my children. To this day, I'm, I'm surprised. Um, you know, I've got a uh, a 16 year old son. Uh, this is his 17th year. I mean, he was born in 2000. That um, has, he, he does not remember a time in his life when Harry Potter was not part of his life. I mean, it, it's. I mean, not only is it as it, it grew certainly in our family's life because of of my becoming a Potter pundit, but. Um, he just loves the stories, and so he'll be. He, he likes to. He, he has to wash the dishes more often than not every night, and so um, he listens to books on tape while he washes the dishes. And I'm surprised. At least you know, once a month I go in there, and he's got Jim Dale listen, this and that, and he kind of smiles at me and shrugs his head like, you know, I'm just listening to it again, you know. <laughs> um, and I. I it's 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 a curiosity. It's a curiosity, certainly. I mean, almost all of my children um, have a relationship with these stories. I don't think I don't think they're unusual in that. Uh, they they call this generation hex in that they, they grew up listening to Harry Potter, um, and so much so that you know when when Harry Potter and the Cursed Child was advertised as the eighth Harry Potter novel. Um, it largely shut down Amazon when they, people ordering it in advance. And then it became the best-selling uh, book of the year and the best-selling play, really, of all time. There's never been a play that's come close to this in terms of sales, um, in terms of the speed of sales. Or the, I mean, I'm sure Shakespeare has sold more um, in the last two centuries, but uh, not overnight um, and not in a single edition. 
So um, it, it's it's that that capture of a generation's imagination is unique, really, in uh, in in human experience that we know of. Uh, anyway, before we get to Harry Potter and Cursed Child, I said about some other concerns of some people might have, and that some people would look at the novels and say. The novels are very dark. I mean, in the fourth one, for instance, we have a first time where a kid at the school actually dies from murder. Not, not an accident. A kid is murdered. See, these, these are dark stories, aren't they? Yeah, I mean, Rowling, Rowling responded to this when the fourth book came out, and especially when the fifth book came out. The fifth book is really depressing. You know, you, you, I mean, people needed their medication adjusted after reading Order of the Phoenix. But when Goblet of Fire came out and Cedric Diggory, one of Harry's friends, is murdered um, by the Dark Lord, you know, at the time. Actually, he's actually murdered by Peter Pettigrew with the Dark Lord's wand. But, I mean, uh, he's, he's clear, he's killed by, uh, you know, the most wicked people inside the story. It's not as if um, Harry or one of his friends you know, gets angry and, sh- and and shoots one of his friends with a wand, right? I mean, it's, it's, not, it's, not, it's, not, it's not that kind of death. And it's, it's a death which is very meaningful. I mean, the, it, Albus Dumbledore, um, in, in one of the most famous points in the books, when he's saying goodbye at the leaving feast, when everybody, the whole great hall is, is um, in black, in mourning for Cedric, he, he says in a, in a famous chiastic line, remember Cedric, Remember a boy who was brave and good, who was uh, who had the misfortune of of getting in the path of Lord uh, Voldemort. Remember when you have to make a choice between what is easy and what is good. Remember Cedric Diggory. Now that that line, okay. So you have to have the death in order to have the the uh, the remembrance, right? I mean, and and in that line, he basically says what you know. All Christians are called to remember. You know, basically, we're, we're, Cedric Diggory is is a pointer to C.S. Lewis's uh, character in the, in the Chronicles of Narnia, Dig- Diggory Kirk, who is usually assumed to be C.S. Lewis or or Lewis's uh, version of Tolkien that he inserts inside the books. And Cedric Diggory, his his sacrificial death, really uh, an arbitrary death. I mean, he's murdered just because he's in the way. Um, that. That this, you know, many people took this as being a, you have to, you know, basically a call to, um, if not to social justice, you know, warrior, then at least for righteousness. I mean, I know people that are very involved in the abortion debate that took that center trigger line to say, hey, look, you know, it's the choice between what's what's easy and what is good is whether to be upset about, you know, the slaughter of, of millions of innocent children uh, for convenience, and that's it's easy just to forget that you know it's 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 just become part of the atmosphere that we breathe in, in the postmodern world. But it's not good to forget that you know it's 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 good to be concerned about that, to pray about that. I mean, so anyway, that that death may be a dark thing. But anyway, Rowling was asked about the books getting darker, and she said, "Well, you know, the books start off." with a double murder, the death of Harry's parents. And at the end of that book, we have a man whose head has been taken over by the Dark Lord. You know, he's, he's literally this, this, uh, 
two-headed figure. You know, she says, "How much darker can you get than the double murder and the possession of somebody's soul?" You know, so the books don't. The books start off dark, and then they get more involved, certainly, but they don't get that much darker. I mean, it, um, they get more complicated. They they get more engaging. I mean, Rowling's writing just gets better and better as you go through the series, especially after. Goblet of Fire. She took she took three years off, basically. I mean, she, I mean, she didn't take them off. She was running the, the fifth book and, and probably organizing the sixth and the seventh. So that 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 um, that 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 three year vacation. They call it they call it the three year summer because we got the last we got the last book. We got Goblet of Fire in two thousand, and we got the next book in the summer of two thousand and three. But it's it's one summer in Harry Potter's life. They call it the three year summer. That three year summer. Uh, the books get darker, certainly, but only because they, you know, the the Dark Lord is back. Harry's fighting, you know, evil incarnate in a way. I mean, he's fighting a satanic figure, and so the objection that the books get darker and therefore they're not as good is a little bit like saying we shouldn't have Sauron in the Lord of the Rings because you know it's really kind of it's 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 disturbing, you know, to have this 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 horrible force of darkness. Well, we live in a world. That basically we live in an occupied country, you know. We live in, as, as C.S. Lewis liked to say, we live in a world that you know the, the the prince of this world is a deceiver, you know, is is Satan. And so that you know, it's, it's 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 curious to hear from Christians the objection that the books are too dark because it has a satanic figure in it who loses. Mm. Yeah, I'm thinking of a uh, G.K. Chesterton's quote. I'm going to kind of paraphrase here, right? Fairy tales don't exist to tell children there are dragons. Sure, already <laughs> yeah. know dragons exist. It exists to tell them that dragons can be beaten. There you go. That's that's beautiful. Now, you you talked also also earlier about how we uh, relate to the stories, the characters in the stories and such. But some people would say, but we shouldn't relate to Harry because Harry many times is a figure you don't want your children to emulate because he <laughs> he disobeys the rules constantly and such. He's he gets in trouble at school. Everything. I mean, is that the kind of figure we should look at as a Christ figure? Yeah, it's it's it certainly is a challenge. It certainly is a challenge. I mean, I was just reading the end of Goblet of Fire the other day, and uh, you have that very disturbing scene in which uh, Draco Malfoy comes in and basically says the Dark Lord is back and he's going to kill Hermione and everybody else, and he got Diggory first or whatever, and he's blasted by Harry, Ron, Hermione, Ginny, Fred, George. And six people attack him, Crabbe, and Goyle with hexes. They blindside him. He's going to have his wand out. Um, and it causes all sorts of things to burst out in his body, and they throw him into the um, – I mean, it's, it's just – it's bullying. It's, it's the worst kind of bullying. So, yeah, there's, there's instances inside the book where you say, wow – this is not a good guy. This is, I don't even like this character. Now, if you want to, you know, why do we still say he's a Christ figure? It's because, uh, well, two things. First of all, it's a schoolboy novel. Right. And schoolboy novels, be it uh, Tom Brown's School Days by Hughes, the original, you know, sort of the founding, you know, the, the paradigm of, of that genre, or the, or the really much more uh, popular and uh, uh, widely read books by Enid Blyton, the Mallory Towers series, whatever. I mean, those books um, always have a lead character. A, and he has to have a, 
uh, a mate, a best mate who's in the, is, is an athlete of sorts, and he has to have what they call a swatty mate, you know, his 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 uh, intelligent friend, uh, the you know the academically wise guy. Now that trio. Rowling uses masterfully. I mean, obviously, we have Ron as the best mate, and Hermione as the you know the the smart guy who's not a guy. It's it's because because we've got boys and girls at Hogwarts. So Harry has to represent the hero that you're meant to identify with. Now, inside those stories, they're always plotting. I mean, there's only one character in Harry Potter that doesn't lie, and that's Luna Lovegood, right? I mean, she she never tells she never tells a lie. Everybody else. This lies left and right. Uh, and Harry's constantly, you know, avoiding punishment, lying to teachers, doing all these things. And that is typical of the schoolboy and schoolgirl genre. Um, and Rowling would, and if Rowling had Little Lord Fauntleroy in this character, you wouldn't be very sympathetic. It wouldn't be very realistic. Mm-hmm. The, reason, the reason, though, despite that, that we like Harry Potter is that. He is punished, and he and he he does do he his when he's caught doing these wrong things, he is brought to account for it. And here's the wild thing, though, is that in each one of the books, Harry's heart and his capacity for sacrificial love is what really defines him. It's what maybe his name means, the heir of the Potter, you know, and the Potter being a sign of, you know, the the, the maker of the fashioner of the human vessel, right? The, the Potter, oh, you stand for, for for God, the heir of. The, the Potter is not so much um, in this in this book. It's not Harry isn't Harry isn't a Jesus of Nazareth cardboard figure. Right. Um, he is instead a Christian everyman. He's like what all of us are called to become. And what defines Harry is that Harry is this capacity for sacrificial love. He, what, what Hermione calls his saving people thing. You know that he's he's constantly at, when it when. When push comes to shove, Harry says, I- "I'm going to stand in the way of this train that's going to that's going to run over um, Penelope Purehart here. I- I'm going to be the good guy that that uh, saves the weak, you know. And 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 what happens? He he does that, and then a symbol of Christ appears from the Christian menagerie, and Harry rises from the dead to to fight another day or to vanquish the Dark Lord in the last book. I mean, and that's that's." Yeah, Harry is not um, an Aslan. No. Now, when we talk about some of the other characters, one of the objections that comes out, and this one doesn't come from the books, but it came out later from J.K. Rowling herself, and gosh, this car the story came out, but that was when we all learned Dumbledore is gay. How can yeah. a Christian novel have such a major character in there who is gay? Yeah, that's, that's an interesting question. I, well, um... There are there are many Christians who are gay, right? They're not they're not actively gay. They have same sex attraction or whatever. I mean, and, and um, so that's let's 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 say that you know gay people are are damned per se, right? I mean that, that's 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 not right. But it, it, does, it does have something to do with the, how the word gay is used here. I mean, Rowling certainly uses the word gay the way it's used in the United Kingdom as opposed to the way it's used in the United States. I mean, in the United States, there's kind of a spectrum of how we use words that described uh, people that have same-sex attraction. Same-sex attraction is considered to be the, you know, a, a, a natural thing, um, or maybe it's unnatural, but it's something that occurs fairly often, and that if one never acts on same-sex attraction, 
there's you know or whenever never plays with the idea or whatever then there really isn't any sin it's, it's a quality of a person when one identifies as homosexual that means that one probably is acting on those things and this is where we get into things and and yet there are many homosexuals in history i don't like i don't even like the word homosexual because it's it's kind of an absurdity it's, it's, it's a greek and latin mix whatever but anyway if one identifies as homosexual then one is usually acting on this and um in, in American history, at least, and in European history, those people often are closeted. They don't proclaim this activity as a virtue, mm-hmm. right? And then the, on the far side of the spectrum, at least in the United States, when we use the word gay, that means the person is openly, is, is, is what we used to call out of the closet, you know, that, that professes, professes the same-sex attraction and their activity as their identity, right? And so when we hear someone say, Dumbledore is gay. We think, wow, Dumbledore is 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 marching in the gay and lesbian day march. You know, I mean, that he is a um, out of the closet, active uh, man with that identity. He's well, having secret rendezvous of Severus Snape and anything else like that, right? You know what? Yeah, I mean, all the things they write about in slash fan fiction. Now, what's what's unfortunate about that is is that that's not the way that. That spectrum of, of word usage is not common to the United Kingdom. In the United Kingdom, if you say that you, you've got same-sex attraction, you're described as gay. I mean, it just covers the entire spectrum. And so when Rowling, you know, just within weeks of her, you know, outing Dumbledore at, at the uh, – it was called the Open Book – tour that climaxed in Carnegie Hall or whatever, where she was asked, by, and I have friends that were there, you know, Amy Sturgis, Catherine McDaniel, they, they were there at the event. And what happened was a person who had a, had a, had very difficult experiences or whatever said how much the books, you know, in, in the question and answer session, told Rowling how much her books meant to her, and then asked if, if Dumbledore had ever been in love. And that's when Rowling said, I've, I have always thought of Dumbledore as gay. Now, you know, the, the next morning there were T-shirts being sold in New York City saying, I'm a gay wizard. You know, I mean, so I mean, it was, I mean, it, it was, it was a firestorm. But Rowling, you know, within the month had an interview with uh, uh, someone in Scotland and was asked about that and, and made it very clear that Dumbledore um, did not act on his uh, same-sex attraction, that um, he was so astonished at the consequences of his attraction to Gellert Grindelwald that he – you know, was basically a celibate man the rest of his life. Um, and so you, you look at it and say, wow, well, that's, that's really not what we would consider to be gay then, is it? I mean, and, but it's, it, it's nothing. <laughs> it was fascinating to me is, is uh, you know, people jumping on this and saying he's gay, therefore he can't be X, Y, or Z. You know, a, he's a fictional character. But, but B, um, that betrays so much of a... Uh, I don't know what a death eater mindset, you know, sort of a, sort of a, this person is X, therefore cannot be Y, Y being Christian. Um, when there are certainly many people in the world that are, no matter where they are on that spectrum that we discussed, that consider themselves to be Christian believers. Right. Um, whether Orthodox Christians accept them as such, you know, that's, that's, you know, to each believer and each faith um, within Christianity, uh, certainly Orthodox Christians have a very clear t- teaching on this, that, and I'm an Orthodox Christian, but I understand that there are many uh, 
Christian believers who fall anywhere along that spectrum. Um, so it's, 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 it's unfortunate that this has become a, uh, a lever or a club that people have decided to use to, to beat up on the books. Uh, oh, well, it's, it's, it, it, I'm much more interested in talking about the way that's coming out in Fantastic Beasts, for instance. Uh, and we'll, I guess we'll talk about that in a minute. Okay, well, let's uh, start talking about Fantastic Beasts and Cursed Child. Let's start first off with the numbers. Okay? Exactly how well did these sell? Do you have any of the hard numbers on it? I don't have the hard numbers at hand right here, but anybody can Google that. I mean, what you need to know is it was the number one best-selling book on Amazon, and it was the number selling number one best-selling book as measured by the traditional book services like Ingrams and those things, all the distributors that, that come to the bestseller list. And there wasn't anything close. I mean, it was it was far. I mean, it was relatively late in the year, and yet the book outsold every other book, fiction and nonfiction, um, by. You know, uh, you know, large. It, it, nothing had been nothing had been seen like it since Deathly Hallows. You know that um, that rolling. Uh, you know, even though her name was on the cover, and she and she made it very clear that she did not write the script. Right. I mean, on the cover it says explicitly, based on an original news story by J.K. Rowling, John Tiffany, and Jack Thorne. And then underneath it says a new play by Jack Thorne. I mean, when Rowan was being interviewed for this with Tiffany and Thorne, Thorne said, "We wrote a script," and she interrupted him and said, "You wrote a script, Jack," meaning that you know John and I were part of the story making team or whatever. Basically, she said, "This will work. That won't work." I mean, I mean, she was part of the architectural committee, but she didn't do any of the building, and. That's evident inside the story. I mean, it's 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 not really. But to your point, just the fact that Rowling said, "Hey, here's here's the uh, here's the story. Uh, here's here's the, and they advertised it as the eighth Harry Potter story. They couldn't call it a novel. It's just a script. Um, it it just sold. It's it's sold like nothing had sold since two thousand and seven. You know, I'm thinking about, for instance, like if you look at the Superman genre for a while, when, if you look at the movies, the first one and the second one, the, the old Christopher Reeves ones, were huge hits. And then when you get to three and four, people are going to say, no, no, the series stopped at two. Like, these aren't part of a canon. And I think that's kind of what you're saying about the whole cursed child. But it had the same character there, but you can't reconsider it part of a part of a canon, as it were. Well, here's here's the thing, Nick, is that um, Joe Joe Rowling and uh, and she's I guess she's the ultimate authority on this. She says the books are canon, and so we are obliged to. I mean, but but they're post Deathly Hallows, and so there, there's there's now a canon, you know, many years removed from the events of Deathly Hallows. That we have to we have to take into consideration. I forgive me, but I don't I don't know of a single Potter pundit that agrees that these things are canon because they're basically they're fan fiction written by Jack Thorne with Rowling's participation and blessing. Uh, the story itself is a bit of a bust. It depends entirely upon time turners to get us back into time. So people trying to play with time. I mean, and it's and it and it plays on a, on a theme. What they call the bad dad theme, 
you know, the basic sort of the Finding Nemo theme that, that dad is a bit of a jerk and he has to make it up to his kid and, and show that he accepts him just the way he is or whatever. And that bad dad theme, which is, you know, such a tired postmodern cliche, is what we get with Harry Potter, of all people, as the bad dad. Uh, James Thomas at Pepperdine wrote a wonderful piece at Hogwarts Professor about Cursed Child and said that this Harry Potter has nothing to do with the Harry Potter that we came to know um, in the first seven books. And that's, 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 that's the most important criticism of the story is that, you know, I want my Harry Potter back. People say, people say, you know, I want my money back, whatever. No, I don't, I don't want my money back. And I'm not asking for the time I spent reading the book back, but I do want my Harry Potter back. I, you know, Harry Potter is saying that, you know, he didn't think he wanted Albus, you know, he didn't want to be Harry Potter. didn't think Albus Severus was his son or something. I mean, it's just kind of just daffy stuff that, um, that later on people would say inside the story, I don't believe you said that, Harry. And he said, I don't believe I said that. And then the reader is left saying, I don't believe he said it either, you know, because he would never have said it. I mean, it's just, it's, just, it's, a, it's a daffy, um, you know, that, that, but that meme, that bad dad story has to have Harry Potter saying things like that. Uh, so that's, that's where we are. I mean, the, 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 the Cursed Child story, um, I think the best tag I've seen put on it is fan servicing. Just like there has to be a new Superman film, there has to be a new Star Trek film, there has to be a new Star Wars film. It's because there's a there's a crowd of people out there. I'm talking about millions of people, you know, tens of millions of people that that really love those stories and want another one. You know, it's, it's like a bonbon or a, a potato chip. You know, you can't have just one, and you can't when you're when the bag is empty, you want a new bag. And so there, there are people out there that know that, hey, a Harry Potter story is worth about a billion dollars a piece. Um, and Warner Brothers was clearly pressuring Rowling to come out with something. And I think she wanted to close down the series. And so she's, she's now closed it down. There, I mean, you can't do films about Harry Potter anymore because she has set a canonical work that, that whatever you write in that gap between Deathly Hallows and Cursed Child has to work with Cursed Child. Right. So, I mean, I mean, she shut off anybody making Harry Potter movies in the future. Right. That, that's, that's an amazing accomplishment. And then she went back and she's now writing films that come before uh, Philosopher's Stone, you know, many, many years before the, the, the Fantastic Beast films in which she's writing new stories that are not. Really, I mean, you can call them fan servicing if you want, but it's it, because they're so different than the Harry Potter stories. It's, it's clearly the Wizarding World, but they have very different um, setups, very different payoffs, very different themes than we had in the schoolboy novel. It's not a schoolboy story, clearly. They're, they're not at school. So, you, you, I mean, you don't get the gothic feel that you got in Harry Potter. You don't get the schoolboy thing, and you don't get the high Christian fantasy. That the high, you know, the, 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 that that high fantasy, which with all its Christian undertones, you don't get that in Fantastic Beasts. Which is not to say there isn't Christian content inside the, inside those things. It's just to say that it's very different. Um, so Rowling has shut down Harry Potter in terms of you know, the the trio, Hogwarts, etc., by by allowing by blessing the cursed child event to happen. And, it, and obviously, it's going to do a run in, in, in the West End, in London. It's going to do a run on Broadway. 
Uh, they're going to make all the money they can off of this thing. And then it's going to come to the theaters. You know, we're going to have a, a, a blockbuster film made out of out of this thing. Probably two, because it's in two parts. You know, we'll probably have two Cursed Child movies. Now, that's that's a wow, you know, and, and the fans will be delighted. Um, but it doesn't advance the story in any fashion at all. Um, it's just it's just, it's a bookend. It's it's a, it's a bracketing where whole, where Rolling has said now that's that's done. Um, the much more exciting thing is Fantastic Beasts. When I'm considering the mathematics of it all, Vada, these books were very big for elementary schoolers in such a way coming out. Well, now that crowd is older, and such <laughs> a, we, we, what we realize that they may be older, but they're still wanting it, and there are no doubt kids who never grew up with these stories, and now they're getting into them because they're seeing the whole craze is suddenly right back there again. Like we said, it never died. It was just waiting for somebody to come and light it up again. Right. I mean, I mean, I guess I, here's here's some of the two things. Okay, three things maybe. Um, first, uh, what you said is that we're we're getting a second wave of Potter mania, second generation or whatever. Um, and the people that first, let's say first that more adults were buying Harry Potter by the fifth book. Than, than uh, adults buying them for children. All right. I mean that that Harry Potter became an adult phenomenon uh, in two, by 2003. That it was it was more about adults than it was about children by 2003 in the fifth book. Now, um, but you're right. There are children that have grown up. That I mean, for example, but my boys, for instance, my, I have a 16 year old and 18 year old at home. They still haven't read Cursed Child. They're just disgusted by the idea of Cursed Child. Um, but but Fantastic Beasts, they went to see that film, and they're excited because it's 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 clearly a rolling product, um, and it's and it's it's that it's that world again and that kind of magic. But <laughs> here's here's something that the real question to ask about this is why, if Cursed Child is the best-selling book of 2016. And people are looking forward to it coming to the States. People are looking forward to becoming a movie so they can see it. Why is that the case? And when Rowling has written three novels so far, The Cormoran Strike Mysteries, Cuckoo's Calling, The Silkworm, and Career of Evil, she's written these three novels in a seven-book series. And there may be more, but, but it starts off as a seven-book series. And these books, in a way, are commentaries on the Harry Potter novels. Um, reflections at least of them you know we're rolling is trying to i think really trying to tell us what she thought those first books were about why aren't those books selling very well why why isn't there a, a cormoran strike mania um and i think they, we, 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 i talked about the iliadi thesis earlier it's largely because the christian content in them is so much more subliminal um that i mean casual vacancy had you know the um, the Good Samaritan theme in it really as as its powerful finish or whatever. I mean, it, but the there is no you know parable uh, Christian content inside Cormoran Strike. So it looks like the Iliadi thesis is confirmed by the fact that Cormoran Strike, which are, which as books as novels are written at, at so much higher level than the Harry Potter books were, um, but because they involve a different genre. They're basically private investigator detective fiction. Um, that that 
um, genre doesn't have the content and the connections that schoolboy novels, gothic romance, and uh, high Christian fantasy do. So we don't have that connection with those stories. When people heard there was going to be an eighth Harry Potter story, they assumed it was going to be another schoolboy novel with gothic touches and, and those and that Christian content that gave them that resurrectional experience that they were waiting for. And there's almost none of that in Cursed Child. I mean, there's, I mean, there's, there's yeah, they go, they go to school, but the gothic elements are minimal, and the um, the, uh, the the Christian high fantasy is almost entirely lost. Could you explain what you mean exactly by gothic elements? Because I'm sure a lot of people think about all those people that they see at the mall who have dark hair and dark <laughs> fingernails and such. Yeah, yeah, Severus Snape, right? I mean, yeah, I mean that. That uh, gothic is a term used to describe – it starts with novels that are written in the late 18th century, um, like things like Ca Castle of Udolpho, um, that uh, – Mysteries of Udolpho, excuse me, Anne Radcliffe's book. Um, that These gothic novels um, almost always involve certain things. I mean, for, certainly they involve a gothic heroine, a gothic – a woman who is being um, – uh, chased or um, mistreated or imprisoned. Um, there's almost always a castle. There's um, usually a crazy monk involved. There's a, uh, gosh, I mean, what's funny is there's a book called The Cambridge Guide to Gothic Fiction or Gothic Literature. And it describes 27 characteristics of Gothic fiction. You know, a forbidden forest, scenes at night, an atmosphere of death, a, a scar, a found text. You know, all of these characters, there's 27 of them. And the person says, look, if there's five or six of these characteristics, you know you're in a Gothic novel. Well, Rowling in Harry Potter has 24 of those characteristics. You know, I mean, she's basically writing a Gothic parody very much like Jane Austen's Northanger Abbey. It's, it's, it's got all of these Gothic elements inside the story, and it's meant to be a hat tip. When you say parody, we tend to, tend to think of that word as um, a mockery. You know, I think I'm weird out immediately. That's right. You know, you're trying to you're you're mocking it, or you're um, you're you're belittling it in a right. way. You know, you're 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 not just teasing it in affection. You're doing it. well. That's not the way parody is used in literature. Parody in literature can be. Um, remarkably uh, important. It can be a rewriting and a reexamination. Like James Joyce's Ulysses is his take on the Odyssey by Homer, right? And uh, if you've read, uh, I mean, certainly uh, uh, The Lord of the Rings is a parody of epic, uh, you know, of, of heroic mythological epic. And Lewis's uh, space trilogy most, you know, most obviously, it's, it starts off with a book which is basically an H.G. Wells science fiction novel. And he says that. He's, 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 redoing, he's, he's writing a parody of those things and refashioning that, that genre to his own usage. Mm -hmm. and, and he does the same thing in the, in the next book. He, he does Paradise Lost on Venus. And then he writes a Charles Williams novel uh, the way he would write it. I mean, the joke is, is, is that, that the last book in the space trilogy – is the best Charles Williams novel not written by Charles Williams. And, and that, and the Chronicles of Narnia, he basically takes stories, he, he lifts them straight out of um, E. Nesbitt and rewrites them 
in his his own little magical world. Now that that's that's not theft, and it's not mockery. It's parody. It's 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 basically a joyful reexamination of it and turning it on its head. Amy Sturgis, one of really the, my favorite Potter pundits, because I I never hear Amy Sturgis say anything that I don't learn something important. She she wrote a thing this last last. Uh, Last year, at the end of last year, about Rowling's history of magic in North America, that was mind-boggling about how Rowling gets it wrong about uh, North American Indians and uh, the Native Americans, especially about schoolboy novels and their relationship with that. Because the nightmare of First Nations people is is, is, is boarding schools. I mean, that's, that's how and it, basically they were, their, their, their children were imprisoned inside these boarding schools and brainwashed to hate their own cultures. Now, that experience among First Nations people is, is not shown in the Harry Potter novels, clearly, it, though, it, though she suggests it, it should be or whatever in, in Ilvermorny, the, the magical school inside uh, North America. But it, what Amy Sturgis points out is that Rowling takes a genre – the schoolboy novel, which is invented in the early 19th century, Thomas Hughes, you know, uh, uh, Tom Brown's school days, to, tra- to, to transmit values of the empire. You know, that, that uh, all of England's battles were won on the, you know, the fields of Eton or whatever. I mean, that, that, those ideas, those heroic Empire ideas, colonial ideas, Rowling turns on their head while writing inside. She does a parody of the schoolboy novel where she's using all the schoolboy novel tropes. I mean, she's got the, the funny twins. She's got the sadistic teacher. She's got the crazy French teacher who teaches divination. So, I mean, all of these characters are straight out of the back lot of a schoolboy novel. Now, that She takes them, but she turns it on its head, and instead of delivering colonial uh, virtues and meaning, <clears throat> Rowling delivers a post-colonial, a post-modern thing about diversity, about acceptance, about sacrificial love. I mean, all of these things are not the virtues that, that you would see in Tom Brown or in Edith Blyton, but Rowling uses that, that genre lovingly in parody to deliver a meaning that she wants to deliver. Um, and, and here's the thing. You get to the Christian content, and the same thing is true. She loves Tolkien. She, I mean, she carried a one-volume, you know, thing of Tolkien around her in her last years of college and her first years in Portugal or whatever. And and, it, and the Harry Potter novels are suffused with intertextual references to Tolkien. Now, that's 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 just a given. But why does she do it? I mean, why does she do it? Is she, is she writing the same kind of novel as Tolkien was? No, she's she's saying that. There are these elements inside here, you know, hey, there's magical creatures, you know, there's elves and stuff. But it's, it's not the same sort of novel. It's not the kind of heroic, epic, mythological thing, certainly, that we see in The, in the Lord of the Rings. Nothing, nothing like it at all. But we see these elements and hat tips because Rowling is writing a parody of high Christian fantasy. It's not like C.S. Lewis. You don't feel like you need to run down to your local church and get baptized the way you do after you finish, say, Voyage of the Dawn Treader, you know, where you, you have Aslan on the beach basically witnessing the children. You don't have that experience at all, but you have a very subtle experience of Harry's transformation as this Christian everyman and his coming 
to a way to get over his doubts about Dumbledore as a as a cipher for God. Mm-hmm. Um, so this parody, you know, it gives you a, because he's writing the parody of three genres. Actually, there's like there's like ten genres inside the books, but predominantly three genres of of schoolboy novel, gothic romance, and and uh, Christian high fantasy. Those genres that she's parodying are so suffused with Christian content because they come from a time in English literature when everything written inside those genres is written by Christians <clears throat> for other Christians for their greater life in Christ. Mm-hmm. When Rowling uses those three genres, even in parody and to invert their meaning, there's so much Christian content in them by default that she winds up writing a remarkably Christian set. It's not something that, you, but, but but when you get to her Cormoran Strike novels, which again I think are brilliant, and I'm I'm really disappointed that Harry Potter fandom hasn't warmed to them more. Um, the Cormoran Strike novels, they're they're largely um, postmodern fiction, literary fiction, and. But but mostly they're private investigative detective fiction. That's what he is. He's, he's a private. Corman Strike is a private investigator. And and guess what? You know there isn't a lot of Christian content in that. Implicitly, um, you can be someone. You can, you, you, know, you, can, you can be a radical atheist writing inside that genre, and st- still you, 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 there are certain formulas that you're obliged to. You know you, you can't write a long series if you kill your detective at the end of every book. Whatever he has to. Excuse me. He has to somehow do better than the evil guy. Um, that, so there, there is some good versus evil and some satisfaction at the end that the right has won out. Um, but there isn't the content like in the Gothic romance about the Christian hero, the, the, the Gothic heroine being chased through the castle, the dungeons underneath the castle, whatever. And all she has to do is just keep running and eventually... Someone's going to. There's going to be a reconciliation, and there's going to be a, someone who arrives to save the day. Mm-hmm. I mean, that and that. There's nothing like that. There's no sort of salvation moment inside a detective fiction, except maybe maybe the exposition that you know, the revelation that the bad guys are bad and the good guys are good. Where you see that there's an inside and an outside. I, I would consider that to be a uh, an, an implicit Christian text mm-hmm. that. The, the interior person and the interior truth is the greater truth, and the exterior thing is very deceptive. Mm-hmm. Um, and Rowling does that not only in the Corman Strike books, where it's like like every bit of detective fiction, you have to be deceived about what's really happening before you can be surprised at how the mystery is resolved. In Fantastic Beasts, as she has said, and as the producer and director have said, the stories are largely about the beast within people. Um, why, why the hero of the story, Nuke Scamander, says the most dangerous creatures on the planet are humans uh, because his creatures are what they are on the surface. And maybe they look dangerous and frightening and this and that, but they're not. They're, they're just who they are. Um, and instead of accepting them, we who, who disguise our inner beasts with a surface of piety, almost every one of the human characters in Fantastic Beasts is – has, has got a beast within them that they're disguising with their office, with their authority, whatever. Um, the only good people are the people that are on the surface who they really are. Um, 
and ro- that's Rowling's implicit message inside these books about um, what it means to be human. What it means to be human is to be in contact with who you really are and to be that person, you know, up front. Um, to, to basically, in, in Christian language, to recognize the old man, to separate yourself from it, so that one can be more this person of love that we're created to be, you know, as an image of God. I mean, that's, that's, I mean, Roll is giving that message implicitly inside these stories about fantastic beasts. Well, speaking of being a person of love, I think that's very relevant because if you're here next week, now I'm going to try and get these guests on here. We were, going, I was going to interview them earlier this week, but I wasn't able to because, like I said, my wife was feeling sick and she has to come first. They understand, we're going to try and come back. This is actually a couple from a church we used to go to when we lived back in Tennessee. Their names are Les and Jan Greeby. So I'm hoping we're going to get there. If not, then you're just going to have to wait to be 18th for a new show. But if we do get them on, it's for Valentine's Day weekend. And they are going to be talking about love and marriage. Now, why should you listen to these people? Because they have been married for over 50 years. And they know a little bit about what it takes. They taught some classes at our church. They were so good. My wife and I attended twice. And when we came to attend the third time, we said, okay, we need to start a separate group for these couples who are already married and wanted to do more. And so we started a third group. But they're going to be on here talking about marriage. And it's going to be marriage enrichment for Valentine's Day weekend. But now let's get back to John Granger talking about Pardomania. Now, now, you've been talking so much about all these things that J.K. Rowling is putting in her works and such. I think we need to let people know we're sure about that. J.K. Rowling isn't just some random person. There. She is actually an extremely educated, very well-read lady, isn't she? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. When I first, when I, when I first started writing about uh, Rowling and Harry Potter... Um, I wrote in my book that you know, that she had first front you know, that, that she graduated. She was she was the head girl of her comprehensive, which we, we'd call public school in um, England, and that she went to the University of Exeter and that she majored in classics and that she is that well, it, it is true that she was head girl and she did very she did very well on her A levels whatever, but that. Is where it ends. I mean, Rowling was not a great student at the University of Exeter. She didn't major in classics. She majored in French. She took some classics in um, classical studies, which is not Latin and Greek. It's the study of mythology. Um, and if you if you listen, if you read her own stuff, as she wrote about this, uh, she didn't she didn't do very well there. I mean, she 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 was not a great student, and and, and her classmates. Talk about her being basically a party girl. So I mean, she, I mean, she she was very good at French. She you know she traveled to France. Um, she's all but fluent in French, um, and her Latin is better than she says it is because what she studied in her comprehensive. But she didn't really study any of that in college. She's very well read. That's certainly that's certainly the case. I mean, she said that the books are largely she says the um, the product of the compost pile of all the things that she's read. And when you when you read her books, you you really it's astonishing the not only the the breadth of the things that she's read that are that are referred to inside the books, but the depth at which she understands them. I mean, for example, 
Um, if, if, if you, I don't know how much your listeners know about this, but I mean, the books are a remarkable uh, ring composition. Mm-hmm. The seven book, the seven books themselves is a series, and each one of the books is what they call a ring composition. Some of us know that as chiasmus and clusio or bracketing. And, but what it is is basically the books, you know, begin and end uh, at, at the same point or with the same references. They have a story turn in the center that reflects the beginning and the end. And here's the tricky part, Nick, is, is that all the chapters going out to that story turn will be a mirror reflection somehow of the, of the chapters coming back. They call it a turtle back structure. If you, if you imagine a turtle is seen from above, that's what the structure of these books looks like. And Rowling does that so that every chapter inside the book has an echo inside the same book. And then the books in the series, as you lay out the seven books, also work that way. So it's, it's a remarkable thing. Now you say, where did she get that? I mean, she could have gotten that from C.S. Lewis because... Lewis is also a ring writer, but I think that may be a, a, a coincidence. I, I think more likely she got it from a writer named uh, Vladimir Vladimirovich Nabokov, who she has said is one of her three favorite writers. Her three favorite, her three favorite writers are Jane Austen, Colette, the French writer, French woman writer, and uh, Vladimir Nabokov. And here's the thing is that all three of those writers write parodies. Um, Colette wrote a book called Claudine's School. It was her first book. It's, it's largely a schoolgirl novel, and it's a parody of, of schoolgirl novels. You know, it's a homoerotic novel. Um, the uh, Jane Austen, her first book was uh, Northanger Abbey, the parody we were talking about earlier about Gothic novels. And Nabokov wrote a book called Pale Fire, which is one of the most important books in postmodern literature. And it's a book which is uh, filled with two things. One, it's stuff with alchemy, so much that, that Lindy Abraham, the uh, expert on literary alchemy and English letters, wrote an article called uh, uh, Nabokov's Alchemical Fire, because the whole book is suffused with that. And that book is a, um, a parody of books that are annotated by the things. It also is a uh, Filled, it, it's, it's a book that is, in a very complicated way, bracketed. It's, it's, a, it's a poem and being interpreted in this and that. And Nabokov's Lolita, some say, is the same thing. Now, that's um, to, to, to have read those books and to have come up, come out of it with the idea, hey, I can write a parody that, that turns these things on their heads the way these books that I love have turned things on their head or whatever – um, while telling an engaging story that also you know, it, it delivers this remarkable experience of doubt changing to faith that we get inside Harry Potter. This is a remarkable achievement, as you say, not only of reading, but of comprehension and then of applying that to one's own story. It's just no wonder that it took her five years to plot the books before she even started to, to write them. You know, when you're talking about this, I can't but wonder, you think a lot of the people who are objecting to the books and or just really looking at only things that are like surface that saying, oh, magic, bad, and throwing it out and not really taking the time to really wrestle with the content of the books. Although, strangely enough, they seem to make an exception for the Chronicles of Narnia and Lord of the Rings when magic shows up in those. Well, some people do object. <laughs> I've, I've met these people. Yeah. Um, and, and that's, and that's, you know, everybody's, it's a free country, as they say. Right. But that, that, and people have, you know, different parameters of their faith. And while I don't agree with them, 
I can certainly respect them. Mm-hmm. But it's uh, people that dismiss Harry Potter. Um, it's it's in my experience, it's been one of three things. It's either been um, snobbery that's driven by uh, what books are considered to be taken seriously, mm-hmm. and the and the schoolboy novel and juvenile fantasy. Those aren't those aren't genres you take seriously. Only Twilight that did. Um, uh, Harlequin romance, you know, and that's, that's other thing that's lower than schoolboy novels, really on the on the hierarchy of things. So it's either snobbery or it's misogyny. It's the assumption that that basically a woman couldn't do this. That that, that, that this is not Philip Pullman with his his Oxbridge his you know, dark accents. materials. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but that's a, that's a very well written series, uh, as atheistic as it is, um, and because he went to the, the better schools in the UK is considered to be, you know, something that one can admire more easily. And you can believe more easily because he's a man that he was running these books thoughtfully. Uh, clearly a parody of, of and, and, a, and a negative parody of the Chronicles of Narnia, the Dark Materials books. But, um, and the third thing is just that there's a resistance, uh, and I, I suffer from this, certainly. There's a resistance to anything that's very popular. Mm-hmm. If it's popular, then it can't be very intelligent. Because, I mean, because our masses are stupid. Right. I mean, it's, it's the hoi polloi, uh, you know, the belief that, that anything that the many find important and valid can't be good. Now, um, that's, that's true as often as not, right? I mean, I, I don't, I, as I say, I suffer from this myself. But I find myself constantly being astonished I mean, as I said, I'm doing PhD research on this now and going through the critical literature that's been generated by, in the last 10 years about Harry Potter, about um, how seriously um, people misunderstand Harry Potter, as well as the profound things that they've discovered that I say, wow, this, this, is, this is really valuable stuff. I mean, for example, this, 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 this is last October – I was in uh, uh, Philadelphia, Chestnut Hill, Pennsylvania, at probably the best Harry Potter conference. Uh, certainly, the best one that's held annually is is the the Harry Potter conference at Chestnut Hill College. Um, and, and if anybody, if, if you're a if you're a Harry Potter reader, um, you need to go there. It's, it's held in late October every year. And then they shut the town down. The town turns into Hogsmeade. They have, they have like 15,000 people arrive and, and just jam those streets. I mean, it's, it's a remarkable festival. They have a Quidditch, game, Quidditch match thing. It's, it's a remarkable Quidditch tournament. It's a remarkable event. But anyway, the best part about it is, is on the Friday of that weekend, they have a uh, an egghead event at the, at the beautiful Chestnut Hill College's uh, campus. And uh, this last year, I, I go every year if I can. This last year, there was uh, a, a talk that was given by a woman from New York named Caitlin Harper, and I'd never heard of her. You know, she hadn't published anything, and she she talked about um, Quidditch in Harry Potter, which a very good friend of mine, Emily Strand. I thought Emily Strand had written the last word on Quidditch. Um, and then she wrote an essay that was published in Harry Potter for Nerds too. I mean, it's 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 great stuff. But I, so I, I'm sitting here though because what she said, what Caitlin Harper was was saying, was that the Quidditch stories inside each Harry Potter novel tell you what that novel is about. That Rowling is writing 
a story inside her story about the story with that quiz match. Now, and, and, and she made a very cogent argument, Nick. I mean, it, it was, I, I left the thing thinking, gosh, I've been reading these books now for 15 years. And to me, the quiz matches were always where I checked out. You know, I just, you know, we know, you know fine, flying around and they, and they win the game. But it wasn't someplace you went for meaning. But instead, Caitlin Harper revealed those stories are Rowling's story inside the story where you get to experience you know, the story as if you're in the story. I mean, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a remarkable intratextual accomplishment. Um, and it was, it was something that was, was just obscure enough that I'd, I'd never thought of it. Um, that's the stuff that's coming out now from people that grew up reading Harry Potter. These people are many English professors. They're obviously brilliant people. And they've gone back and revisited the text to, sh- to show what all is in there. And, th- I, you know, part of Rowling's uh, – hey, she's, she's really turned a little, little cranky, hasn't she, lately on her Twitter feeds and all these things. I mean, I think part of it may be the frustration is that people don't, don't appreciate her artistry. Um, certainly there's been a uh, – the, the, the Corman Strike books sell very well. Um, I'm sure they sell better than uh, most, if not all – detective fiction, but they don't sell anything like the Harry Potter novels did. And I assume that's because um, people people don't, don't think that they're any good because they're not Harry Potter. Mm-hmm. Um, and what a shame. And then and, and again, I, I think a lot of people still kind of roll their eyeballs at the idea that Harry Potter is worth reading again. You know, it's, 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 it's supposed to be a beach read. You know, you read it on the beach and you read it and you're done. Next book. Um, that's... You know, that's, that's pretty sad because, as, as we're saying, we're still finding things inside these things. She was interviewed by Larry King in 2000, and she was asked if she ever thought these books would be as popular as they are. And she said, no, of course not. And she walked that back later and said, well, I did think maybe they would be. But in that interview, she said, no, I didn't. I did think they might be a cult phenomenon, meaning that there would be a small group of readers that would get what she was doing. You know, the, the parody and the intertextuality um, and that those people would um, like people who do the Rocky Horror picture show, you know, events or whatever, that they would get together you know, in their secret clubs, you know, and, and, and play, play Sorting Hat or whatever. But that that points to me that she knew how involved um, and how intense these books are. And yet they're subtle. I mean, she said that. That her favorite books, um, like, like Jane Austen, are books that, and and, and Roddy Mc, and, and and the McDowell books, the, these books um, that she loves don't seem to be doing what they're doing. She says they, they, there's a lot more going on under the surface, and you, you're experiencing the story, and you you can't see how the clock mechanism is working by looking at the clock face. Um, I think she's saying that she does that as well. Um, and, and, and certainly it's been my, my experience as an exegete really of these texts is that we keep finding more stuff. Um, I mean, the woman is a, a brilliant parody writer. Um, and it's, that's, that's something we're just beginning to fathom now. What, you know, 10 years after the last book came out and, and, and literally – you know, 400, and the last time they counted the books, the last time they published a count was in 2012. 
and they said 450 million copies. So you have to assume that we're well over half a billion copies by now, especially with the new resurgence in interest. And and that many readers, and we're really just now beginning to understand what they're about, it's an amazing thing. I'd like to remind everyone, you're listening to the Deeper Waters podcast, and everything we do here is listener-supported from people like you. And if you want to support us, please go to my website, deeperwatersapologetics.com. Pretty easy to find, isn't it? And there's a link you can find there. It says, Help Support for Work of Deeper Waters Christian Ministries. Now, if you click on the link in there, you're going to be taken to the ministry of Risen Jesus. You've gone to the right place. That's the ministry of my in-laws, Mike and Debbie Lacona. And you make your donation there. And then you notify me or my wife or notify Mike or Debbie Say, hey, I made my donation. I want to go to Nick Peters. I want to go to Deeper Waters. If we'll make sure you get our donation, it will be tax deductible. You can also go to the to your Amazon store. I have some ebooks for sale there. One I've written entirely on my own, and that's a creed for the ages, the Apostles' Creed in today's Christian. Others I've co-written, those include uh, Defining Inerrancy or Groundless, look at Dan Barker. Or God and natural disasters, a debate with an atheist on the problem of evil. And then, guys, Valentine's Day is coming up. You might not have noticed this yet, but women like jewelry. And there's a link on my site where you can purchase jewelry for that lady in your life. Use the access code LOVE if you need some help, get in touch with me. And let them know that Deeper Waters was a person referred to you. When you do that, whatever you purchase, 25% of that goes over here to Deeper Waters to help us out. So, guys, get your lady something special, especially for Valentine's Day. But I would make him special anytime, you know, just because you made that screw up recently and you very need to make up for it. Or you're going to make that screw up sometime soon because I know you're going to, just like I'm going to, and you need to make up for that. And please also consider going on iTunes and leaving a positive review of the Deeper Waters podcast. I love to see them. Now, John, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, excuse me? Yeah. Do you, no, have, an, do you have an organization or charity you'd like to see people donate to? Oh, uh, I, you know, really what I long for is for folks to come to my website, hogwartsprofessor.com and join in the conversation there. Um, okay. We've got, uh, I'm, not the, I'm not the only writer at Hogwarts Professor. I've, I've got um, three faculty members along with me there that are also Hogwarts professors uh, that, that write the most, really the most fascinating things, not only about Harry Potter, but about reading, writing, and rolling in the age of Harry Potter. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's, if, you're, if you're interested in uh, anything from Harry Potter, The Hunger Games, Twilight, uh, Divergent series, those are things we've talked about recently. Uh, and it's really Fantastic Beasts and Cursed Child. You need to go there and, and join in that conversation. Mm-hmm. Well, let's uh, start talking about Fantastic Beasts. And yes, spoiler alert, and this includes even for me, because I haven't yet got to see the movies. But, I mean, I, I think, wasn't Fantastic Beasts and where to find them even referred to in the Harry Potter novels themselves? 
Right. I mean, the, the books were first written by Rowling. Um, one, it's we don't know if she wrote the books for this or whether she already had the books. We know that she, the, the legend, Nick, is that she has a box of notebooks that are her backstory in which she's written the life stories of every person that's mentioned inside the books. Mm. And that these, these notebooks are the material from which she draws, you know, these side references inside Harry Potter. Now, um, Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them is a textbook they use at Hogwarts. It's mentioned inside the books as a textbook. And she she took uh, this book and uh, put it through the ages. And she wrote uh, them as, as, as textbooks and sold them, all the, all the uh, profits for which went to an organization called Comic Relief. The Quidditch Through the Ages was written by Kenilworthy Wisp, and Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them was written by Newt Scamander. Now, uh, Rowling says that, um, that she decided to write a, 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 a screenplay for Fantastic Beasts because... Uh, uh, Warner Brothers has said they had exercised the option they had on those two books, and they were going to write. They were going to make a movie about Fantastic Beasts. Now, this is this is kind of a story we don't know all the details, but it's it's fairly obvious that Rowling was forced into this, in that, or, or just to protect her her franchise, because they were going to put together what they called a documentary on Fantastic Beasts. Oh gosh, that was just a comic. And she said, "Oh, I've got a lot of stuff on Newt." She says that she had, when when writing the textbook, she had come up with something of a story about this. Whether that's true or not, she basically got a big push to do this. I mean, and this is not the first time that's happened. When we had Cursed Child, the first time they announced. Uh, the play idea was in 2013, and Rowling announced it was going to be a prequel about Harry's experiences at the Dursleys, right? Mm-hmm. And obviously that isn't what turned out. It turned into a sequel many years after the events of Deathly Hallows, not before Philosopher's Stone. And we can see that there's, there's a, obviously these are, these are huge money franchises, um, the last films that, that in the Harry Potter series made over a billion dollars a piece. And so that, that kind of money means, and, and the fact that Warner Brothers still, you know, owns a piece of it, the merchandising parts and all that, they want this to be continually generating money. Mm-hmm. So we got Cursed Child, I think may have been their compromise that they said, basically, we're going to have a, a story here and it will close down the series. And, now we have Fantastic Beasts and Rolling. I think with it was originally going to be a one-off, and then it was going to be a three-part series, and now it's a five-part series. Um, and 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 this five-part series is going to take us, she says, through the defeat of Gellert Grindelwald by Albus Dumbledore in 1945. Okay, so we're going to go from 1926 to 1945. Um, this this series is something that she's doing, I think, largely because she wanted more control on the story, and yet she didn't want to be writing the novels and then watch them be adapted. Now, these these novels have done very these movies that are adaptations of her novels obviously have done very well, but they've been driven by the success of 
the, the novels, and they haven't been very good films. And, and people will say, oh, come on, John, how can you say they're not very good films? But they're not. I mean, they, the, the, the eight Harry Potter films were never nominated for best film. They were never nominated for best actor, best actress, best supporting actor or actress. Um, they didn't. They, 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 were, they never even were nominated for best writing adaptation from, uh, you know, a, another screenplay. Excuse me. These these are not very good films. And to fans of the stories, we're we're, we're always disappointed by the film. Not only because the films would have to be twelve hours long if they actually had everything inside the books, but they don't include really important things inside the books. I mean, there's no creature, there's no, there's no poltergeist, peas, there's no, I mean, there's, there's, there's people that are just left out. Uh, there's, uh, that, that, those departures from that, and, and really the artistry of the story is different. They, they use screen writing formula rather than Rowling's ring composition. Well, she decided, I think, well, I'm not going to write the novels and have them adapted and be as bad as they are. And I'm not going to write the novels because I'm, I'm writing novels. I have novels that I'm writing, these Cormoran Strike novels. I'm not going to be writing two series at the same time. So what she's done is she's written these screenplays. Now, if, if, you're, if your listeners will go to HogwartsProfessors.com, Hogwarts, HogwartsProfessor.com, they'll see that I have very carefully compared – what we see on the screen to the published so-called original screenplay with what they've told us in interviews actually was the movie and what we've seen in other things, everything from uh, story props to the Lego series film. You know, there's, 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 there's a lot of evidence. Well, we know now they've just told us that the uh, DVD will be released in March and it will have 11 deleted scenes. Now, we already knew and have discussed nine of those deleted scenes at Hogwarts Professor. And where those, th where those scenes have to go <clears throat> inside the screenplay showed that the movie that they shot, you know, the, the, the screenplay that was used for the shooting of the film, is not the screenplay that we have now. The, ori the so-called original screenplay is the movie as it was cut by David Yates in the final uh, editing of the film. Now that is a very different story and it's not her artistry. And Rowling writes about this in her acknowledgements at the back of the original screenplay. She says that da, 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 learning in Steve Cloves' immortal words to fit the woman to the dress has been a fascinating, challenging, exasperating, exhilarating, infuriating and ultimately rewarding experience that I wouldn't have missed for the world. I, I want to just e emphasize there the words exasperating and infuriating. Is that basically they largely butchered her, you know, her work in the editing process. I mean, she 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 had made all of her compromises to her screenplay. They said that basically the the, the shooting script was her third screenplay. She did one, it was too dark. They did one, it was too light. They, they, the third one, it was just right. They shoot that one, and then they cut 11 scenes out of it. Um, now, maybe she agreed to that, whatever, but it must have been infuriating and exasperating. Um, so it's still rolling story. There's still a lot of, you know, it, it shows so much more of 
her input than any of the previous movies. Um, and certainly much more than Cursed Child, which is a, a play by Jack Thorne, not by J.K. Rowling. Um, but it's it's something which is not quite what she wrote. I mean, there's there's really important. How about this, Nick? I mean, at the end of that, at the end of the movie, we think that a certain character has died. Mm-hmm. I won't I won't ruin it for you to tell you who that character is. But you think a certain character has died? Well, it turns out we find out in the interviews that that character. They shot a scene where that character gets on a ship and is sailing away. Mm-hmm. That character survived. And they decided to cut that character, to cut that scene out. So what? So it'll be a surprise when that character reappears? Why? How could they cut that scene out? Um, and I could go through all nine of them, all nine of the cut scenes and tell you that. Um, there's, there's, a, there's a precious scene that apparently everybody loved where the, the muggle inside the story, or the nomad, his name is Jacob Kowalski, and, and yes, it's, it's important that his initials are JK. Mm. Um, he's, he's sort of like the, the, you know, the narrator inside the text, or the muggle like us inside the book or whatever. Right. The, the, the movie, as, as originally written and shot, has his, one of his opening scenes after he meets Newt's commander He's, his fiance meets him, finds out that he didn't get the loan that he needed to start his bakery, and she breaks the engagement and gives him back his ring. Just a devastating oh. event, right? Oh. Okay, but at the end of the film, we get to see Jacob in his bakery, and the love of his life comes in, and she's dressed almost exactly like Mildred, his fiance, was in the original scene. And so that's meant to be an echo, you know, a parallel inside the story where you get an opening and a closing that matches up and gives you this remarkable feeling of resolution and satisfaction. But we don't get that experience, Nick, because they cut the first scene out. Mm. Um, They don't share any. Here's the best-selling author of our age, a woman who's, you know, over the top accomplished in how story works and they second guess her after they've shot a screenplay to which I mean, talk about infuriating and exasperating. It must be maddening. Um, and and guess what? Not one. Uh, they got two Academy Awards nominations, both of which were for production values. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't get an award. They didn't get a nomination for Best Picture for any of the actors and actresses. They didn't get anything for Best Director. They certainly and because I mean, none of the people that have directed Harry Potter films has ever been recognized as, as doing a good job. And here's here's Rowling herself writing a screenplay, and she wasn't nominated for Best Writing Original Screenplay. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I've talked to screenwriters, two of them, both of whom did not want to go on the record because they didn't want to get in trouble with the rolling people. And they both said it stinks. It doesn't do what a screenplay is supposed to do. And my my idea is, well, it doesn't even do what rolling wanted it to do because they cut it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but here's here. But here, again, I, this, this, I, Nick, I'm afraid you're not going to go see the film because I'm saying all these bad things about it. Uh, I know. I'm saying here if, I, if it comes out on DVD. Next month, I'm going, I'm going to be eagerly waiting to see what's new on Netflix in March. Okay, well, that's that's good. I, mean, I Me, I go to the matinee. I get it even cheaper than the DVD or whatever. I mean, that, that, that's, um, it's, it's, it's a wonderful film, and it's the first film of a five-part series, so it has to do a lot of introduction and exposition and backstory, even though 
a lot of that's cut out. Um, for example, the, the film as was it was written starts off with Newt coming into the harbor reading a letter from his brother Theseus, okay, who's described as a war hero right later in the story. That letter cues you into the idea that Newt is Theseus, right? And Theseus is the one who goes to, to Crete um, and he rescues, he kills the Minotaur, the magical creature, the half man, half beast creature, and escapes with it. With, with, and, and largely, he, he does all this because of a character named Hippolyta. Well, we find out in the story that Newt's uh, true love, uh, the, there's, there's some darkness involved here, but Lita, uh, Newt's true love is named Lita, like Hippolyta. I mean, this, this is an important reference, and they cut out the scene where Newt reads the letter from his brother Theseus. And so we don't realize that the whole story, in a way, is Newt's coming into uh, New York to battle the Minotaur, who turns mm. out to be a character inside the story. I won't ruin it for you, but there's a character who's really um, half man, half beast inside the story that Newt reveals in the end as, as who he is um, and saves the day. Now, that you don't get the fact that Rowling is writing a Theseus story because they cut that out of the book. Now, how, how do they expect a woman to get a, a, an Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay when they don't allow you to have the clues as to what the story is really about. Mm-hmm. Oh well, I, I, here I am. I'm, I'm the Grinch. You know, I'm, I'm the guy who's, who's disappointed about the sausage making of movie making. I I'm exasperated and frustrated because I'm confident that if Rowling were allowed to say, "Hey, the shooting script is the is the final product." Um, you're not going to cut up. You know, David Yates is not going to have the right to go into the, the the editing room, chop this thing up, and then say that's my screenplay, mm-hmm. uh, or that's my movie. Because that's, I mean, David Yates has has, has not won an Academy Award, um, and certainly none of his work on Harry Potter was in the world hasn't even been nominated for an Academy Award. It's not considered to be very good work. Um, the, the production values do get nominated because you know they're magical or whatever, and I'm sure David Yates has a lot to do with that. And and the the, the producer David that, that's Heyman who's been on on board from the very beginning, he does all that. But they don't get any awards because they're butchering the story to to cut it into screenwriting formula. Um, yeah. Oh well, I mean, and, and, and as I was saying that, for example, that that Jacob Kowalski character. Yeah. Um, this is going to be critically important. And I, and I uh, believe it or not, if you remember the last story, Nick, the Deathly Hallows, a lot of it has to do with the Elder Wand. You know, mm, the, yeah. the, one of the Deathly Hallows is the Elder Wand or whatever. And if you defeat a wizard that, that uh, is the owner of the Elder Wand, then you become the master of the Elder Wand. And you're not supposed to be able to do that even because if you have the Elder Wand, you can't lose in a duel. That's, that, you can't lose in a duel, but you can be defeated otherwise. You know, right. you can, you, you know, so in this story, a character who is the master of the Elder Wand is defeated by a fantastic beast that, that uh, Newt's commander is in charge of. Uh, and Newt disarms this wizard so that Newt... Newt's commander is now the master of the Elder Wand. Now, that 
that you know is going to play out to be critically important, right? When Grindelwald comes into the story, or whatever, and you you know, and you can be confident, I think, because of what Rowling's themes are inside the story, that it's going to involve Jacob Kowalski. That Jacob Kowalski, the Muggle, may wind up being the master of the Elder Wand. Mm. Okay, it's going to be amazing. I mean, Rowling has told. Uh, uh, Fogler, the the man who's who plays the part of Jacob Kowalski, that that his transformation is going to be miraculous. Mm-hmm. I think he may even become a wizard, whatever. But but that that um, event inside the story is so important, and yet we don't get Jacob Kowalski's importance because his storyline is cut up and butchered. Mm-hmm. Uh, such a shame. Such a shame. Um, right. We probably got about ten or twelve minutes left for just. Talking about this, when we're looking at all this Pottermanian that's going on, what do you think Christians are missing, and what should we learn from it? Huh. You know, I, I talked about this just a little bit earlier mm-hmm. about um, what uh, two things we talked about. One is the beast idea that there's a beast inside of us, or whatever, and the other is about living in an occupied country. Um, you know, a, a lot of Christians have, especially consequent to the um, what what Kurth calls the the Protestant uh, declension or the Protestant deformation, that what we're seeing is a uh, a Christianity which is that embraces the world. It says how well we do in the world is a sign of whether we are saved or not, mm-hmm. and that this is a function of uh, Protestant theology in the second generations and third generations after the you know the the the, the thrust of the of the Reformation. Now that idea is that the world somehow, on the surface, reflects our interior st- status with God. Um, rolling is after that idea. Uh, I don't know, uh, hammer and tongs, I guess. I mean, she, she wants to explode the idea that what you see on the surface is what there is. And I, and I think this is true also of what Orthodox Christians, either large O or small O Orthodox Christians believe. And that is that there is a, uh, a capacity within us, a, a logos within us that is what brings us into existence, what really is our, our life. I mean, C.S. Lewis talks about this, and he calls it the conscience, this, this shared knowing, this, this, this logos uh, ability to see and understand things. This capacity within us is what makes us real. Mm-hmm. And, and rolling is after that. I mean, certainly the end of Deathly Hallows, when Harry sees Dumbledore and says, hey, is this real or inside my head? And Dumbledore says, of course, it's inside your head, but why would you think that's not real? Meaning that that the subjective objective thing is not the way we understand how we know. How we know things is through this logos capacity, which is an aspect that is somehow continuous with the, the logos capital lambda that brings us into existence moment to moment. Mm-hmm. And that and that if, so much as we identify with this conscience what what lewis uses that word because it means shared knowing that there's there's a transpersonal faculty of knowing that isn't individual 
but is shared, this, this conscience, this logos. So much as we identify with that metaphysical reality, then we, the, the surface can show that so much as, as our external reality shows that we have uh, you know, given up ourselves. Like John the Baptist says, I have to become less that you might become more. As much as I give up my accidental historical self, my ego, then the Lord within me, the Christ in, within me through which all things are possible, then I become fully human. Rowling is showing that because she's, she's especially in Harry Potter and, and New Scamander, she's writing inside the fantasy, the English fantasy tradition. But she's also writing it in terms of the, inner, the, the beast story because we're seeing that this, this beast inside of us, this ego identity, this, this, this uh, individual longing for advantage and fleeing disadvantage, you know, pursuing pleasure and uh, fleeing pain and difficulty um, is absolutely contrary. You know, it's, it's the old man as opposed to the new man in Christ. Mm-hmm. This 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 person, this logos, which is eternal, you know, this is our our soul as designed, with its noetic faculty turned to Christ. When when that happens, excuse me, then we experience the life in Christ. But so much as we identify, as, as much as we pretend that there's no beast inside of us, that we're not acting out of our individual advantage and disadvantage, as much as we try to ignore the fact that we have an identity which is not the, the identity with, with this logos, which is sacrificial love and identifying our neighbor as ourselves and identifying with God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, then we're not really human. Mm-hmm. Then we're, we're mortal egos that are about to die. Rowling gives us this message implicitly inside her stories. Now, people focus on you know the Dumbledore's gay stuff. They 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 harp on the 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 political message, and there certainly is political messaging inside the stories. But the power of the story is not on the allegorical social level. It's on the anagogical, sublime, and spiritual levels. That I mean, we're taught to read at four levels, right? There's the surface story, and then there's the morality of the story. Then there's this there's the allegorical or or social political events. And then there are the ties that are what Dante and others, Thomas Aquinas call the anagogical, which simply means that, you know, the turning back, the reflective, the spiritual or sublime qualities inside of literature. And that is where Rowling uh, is, achieves her greatest mastery because of her use of symbols, her use of structure, um, her use of all these things. Now, Christians can learn a lot <laughs> about you know, for example, the, the guy who broke the code, uh, Merle Brett Kendall, was an uh, assistant professor at Fordham University in New York uh, in Old Testament <laughs> uh, literature. And he broke the code on the chiasmus structure of the, of the series of books because he was working day and night as an Old Testament scholar with chiasmus. Right. And, he rec- and he recognized in Harry Potter, these same structures, which pervade all of English literature, because they also pervade English, you know, the English translations of scripture and scripture themselves. Christians can learn a lot about how to read scripture by a profound understanding of how Harry Potter is written. Mm-hmm. I mean, an irony of ironies, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, you know, a book that Christians reject as being demonic and this and that, 
are actually source texts for them to have a more profound understanding of not only what it means to be Christian, but how, how to read scripture profitably. I think another thing that we can learn from it is uh, too often, I think, when we make Christian movies and such, we think, like I said earlier, that we have to spare the gospel out for everyone, whereas we don't get it. Where those movies and those books never sell well at all. They, they appeal to Christians. That's it. So we're very good at reaching our own. But we're not good at reaching those on the outside. Right. And, and I, one, I, I love Christian movies. <laughs> I mean, I, I, and, and that may be because, I, you know, that it's, it's aimed at me. And, I, you know, I, my, my kids joke that I start to laugh when they roll the trailers for, for coming attractions, right? I'm, I'm the most easily manipulated film goer in history. Um, I mean, I, I, I would I, if if they do a commercial for cotton candy or Reese's cups or whatever, I'm crying. If they if they tell a story that's sentimental, I'm I'm already flat on my back. But um, and so I like Christian movies. I, I don't I you know. But as you say, the unchurched flee from these films, right? I mean, this, it, 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 and if they go to the film accidentally and they feel they're being witnessed, uh, they're furious. Right? I didn't come here for an altar call. Um, well, that's what's one nice thing about Harry Potter is that um, nobody feels they're getting an altar call, and yet they're getting a very at least uh, in, inside the books they're getting a, a strong subliminal message about um, what it means to be human and, and what that has to do with sacrificial love. You don't get that in the eighth movie. The eighth movie was a disaster largely subverted the meaning of the book. Um, I mean, it was, it was Hollywood's takeover of the series and it's, it's breakdown. I did very well. Cause it was, you know, the last, everybody wanted to see the last movie, whatever, but very disappointing in terms of what it communicated about, um, the meaning of the series. Mm-hmm. But, um, even there we got more than we would in a normal film because it was an adaptation of a book that, as I said, Christianity today said, Harry Potter seven is Matthew six. Um, that, that um, substance inside her books, though not on the surface, has, 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 has had powerful effects. Now, people write to me sometimes and say, gosh, I heard about this poor kid. He was on the internet and he went to an occult site and they sorted him into his house and um, he got really involved in the occult and he was lost because his Harry Potter fascination took him into that website. Well, I mean, that's that is horrible. That's 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 a terrible thing. Um, it's certainly though it's not something that you can blame on Harry Potter because here's someone misusing the series for demonic ends. Mm-hmm. People misuse scripture. I mean, go, go, think about Jonestown. That was supposedly a Christian community. That's, that's a horrible, you know, perversion of the Christian message or whatever that ended in deaths of hundreds. Are we going to blame the Bible for that? Um, and certainly, uh, the films, I mean, they're disappointing. I mean, they are, but you, you can't, I, I can, I can share with people if they want stories of people that, uh, loved Harry Potter and then found out that it had, the reason they loved it was because of it's, it's, it's profound Christian meaning and, it, it's pervasive Christian meaning. It's not it's like it appears in spots. It's throughout the entire book. Um, and they consequently, you know, uh, converted to a life in Christ. 
Um, that I think you should, you can say that is linked to the story because it's the story that brought them to that conviction. Um, it wasn't, a, it wasn't a perverse use of the books that brought them to a life, to a life in the occult. Um, that's, that's someone's horrible misuse of the series. Well, John, we've uh, come to the end of our time, unfortunately. Uh, I know you've talked about this before already, but i got to ask again, do you have a blog or website where people can get in touch with you if they want to find out more? <laughs> yeah. I, uh, again, I, I blog and my friends, uh, uh, Emily Strand, Elizabeth Hardy, and Louise Freeman, uh, we write, uh, each one of us writes almost every week now, um, about subjects of interest to uh, all readers, and certainly to Christian readers. Uh, and you're, uh, please join us in the conversation. We have comments box there, and, and we talk about all sorts of fascinating things. And in, in the, you know, we call it, you know, reading, writing, and rolling in the age of Harry Potter. And if if you're a serious reader, please join us there to talk about your favorite books. And that's HogwartsProfessor.com. It is. It is. Mm-hmm. Thanks. And I like to have people know the uh, the book on Amazon. One that's one of the best ones I've ever read. How Harry Cast a Spell: The Meaning Behind the Mania for J.K. Rowling's best-selling books. Right now, as we speak, the paperback is twelve forty, and the Kindle is nine ninety-nine. I really recommend picking those up. Um, do you have any uh, final message you'd like to leave today for the Deeper Waters audience? Well, I hope I hope that they'll see Fantastic Beasts, um, and I hope that they'll. Uh, think about the beasts <laughs> that each one of us has mm-hmm. and uh, reflect on that and pursue even more than they already are that greater life in Christ. Well, John, I'd like to thank you for coming on. Hope we will see you back here again sometime. Oh, pleasure. Always always good to be with you, Nick. And like my name went back. Hopefully next week we'll have on Les and Jan Greeby talking about marriage moments. 50 years of marriage. What have they learned? What can we learn? For now, I'm Nick Peters, and I am signing off.